Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School at Harvard University. My name is Frank Clooney. I'm the director of the center and happy to welcome you tonight. Uh, welcome you back because many of you have been here before. And if you are here for the first time, a special welcome that you can uh, come and join us tonight. So tonight we have uh, part of a continuing series that goes back about 10 years now, the annual comparative theology lecture. Uh, began un in the time of my predecessor as director, Donald Swearer, and continues up to now. And we're very uh, grateful in recent years to the Luce Foundation for support for the series, making it possible. So we're always uh, benefiting from the very generous grant that Luce gave to us to make these events possible. And over the years, we've had a variety of speakers uh, in different combinations of tradition, uh, Jewish Christian, Buddhist Hindu, Muslim, Christian, and so on, East Asian, South Asian, uh, Native American one year. So a very wide range of topics getting at this general issue of comparative theology, how to think in faith, how to inquire across religious boundaries in a way that is possibly uh, enriching to one's own tradition, if one has a tradition, but this will be a topic for debate tonight, so we can leave that for later. Um, but we are very happy tonight to have a very distinguished speaker, Robert Cummings Neville, who is a neighbor, uh, a longtime friend of the center here with his wife Beth, who's also here, welcome to you also, um, from Boston University across the river. Although he needs no introduction, I will give one now. So Bob is a total Yaley, uh, <laughs> BA, MA, and PhD from Yale. Uh, his dissertation, I believe, turned into his, one of his first books, God the Creator, 1968, and he has never stopped publishing since then. But he's a busy man. Over the years, he has done many different roles in different universities. For instance, he was Dean of Humanities and Fine Arts at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and has also taught over the years at Yale, Fordham, and State University of New York in Purchase. He's been at Boston University since 1987. Uh, and there he was, first of all, director of the Division of Religious and Theological Studies and chair of the Religion Department, but in 1988 became the dean of the School of Theology, a position he held for 15 years until 2003. Uh, untiring and eager to do something else, he was then for three years dean of Marsh Chapel, and overlapping with that, from 2005 to 2009, he was executive director of the Danielson Institute an institute dedicated to alleviating suffering, promoting healing growth, and change in persons, communities, and institutions. Uh, Bob is also an ordained elder of the Missouri East Conference of the United Methodist Church. He has pastored in Missouri and in New York. He is a president and past president of many organizations, past president of the American Academy of Religion, the International Society for Chinese Philosophy, and the Metaphysical Society of America. He is also somehow, despite all these many burdens, a prolific writer. I looked him up in Wikipedia. He's one of those people with a Wikipedia page. And they divided his interest into four categories. Theory of being, arguing about his distinctive contributions in the process tradition, I suppose. Uh, doing some of the best work since Whitehead in process theology, it says. Comparative theology, which will come up tonight the doctrine of creation, and the understanding in a comparative perspective of the Confucian traditions of China. He, despite being dean, pastor, and so on, uh, has 25 books of his own monographs, 
um, and still counting. He has a new one underway, goodness in form, art, personhood, and civilization, or is that out already? No. It's not out yet. Okay, so that, that one is coming along, but 25 books, including the very welcome uh, series that came out in 2001 that I was happened to be part of, the uh, Comparative Religious Ideas Project that was the human condition, ultimate realities, and religious truth. That was a great project, and Bob steered it successfully between all the icebergs along the way. He is, uh, recently, his most recent book, as far as I know, is 2015, Religion, Philosophical Theology, Volume 3. Um, so there are more volumes to come. He also, along the way, edited at least 11 volumes and has, uh, according to the count in his CV, almost 300 essays, uh, chapters in books, and so on. So a uh, very productive writer. He's also a Boston Confucian, um, and he can explain that to you in the, um, the little write-up that we had um, at our website, which some of you may have seen. He talks about how he, along with Duwei Min, John Berthrong, and several others, talked about Confucianism as a philosophical tradition that has been critical of its culture, can be applied in the late modern West. Pushing this theme and talking about Confucianism led to his description as being a Boston Confucian. I think even to the point you say that people talk about the Boston Confucians and assume that everybody knows who they are. <laughs> so Bob is part of that great tradition as well. Uh, tonight he will speak to us on the theme of comparative theology, religion specific or trans-religious? Question mark. And this is a long debate in the Boston area. Uh, Bob and I um, in the 1980s founded with several others the uh, John Carmen here at Harvard, John Berthrong also at BU, and several others, the Com Boston Area Comparative Theology Society. And over the years, in many contexts, we've talked about how do you do comparative theology, but also where is it grounded? Where do you stand when you do it? And what kind of uh, academic discipline is it? What kind of a spiritual discipline is it? And so Bob will be dealing with these topics tonight in a way that also helps us, I think, to understand um, theology as well. After he speaks, we'll have three doctoral students, one from BC, one from BU, one from Harvard, uh, give responses, and I'll introduce them um, at that time. But I'd just like to conclude this um, introduction to Bob by saying, despite his impressive accomplishments and his many publications and his leadership in many fields, he's also one of the most wonderfully humane, down-to-earth, simple people I know that I think when we first met, perhaps in Chicago a number of years back, always gracious, unfailingly uh, welcoming, uh, respectful of ideas, very different from his own, and always helping to move forward the conversation by including people in it and finding the best in what people have to say. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do all these things and write all these things and then have it all somehow emanate from a person who is highly to be admired and loved as well. So welcome, Bob. I hardly know who he's talking about. <laughs> Thank you. To be invited by Frank Clooney to speak here on this occasion and on this topic is a great honor with something of a karmic trajectory. We've worked together in comparative theology for a very long time. 
Over 30 years ago, on the steps toward the second floor of Swift Hall at the University of Chicago, wine glasses in hand, we determined to found the Boston Area Comparative Theology Society, and did so along with uh, some others. Over 20 years ago, we began a four-year comparative religious ideas project that Frank just mentioned at BU, in which he was a key participant. Some of his students in that project, such as John Tatominal and Hugh Nicholson, uh, have since become prominent in the field. About 10 years ago, Frank conquered Harvard uh, and set comparative theology at the heart of the Center for the Study of World Religions. In 2010, he wrote Comparative Theology, Deep Learning Across Religious Borders. Why don't I pass this around so you get more of what I'm saying. You're going to do that. <laughs> I should have brought all your books. You <laughs> could have had one for each person. Yeah. Um, that book uh, that gave both a history and a perspective on his methodology for the discipline with the treasured and respected interpretation of my own work. Uh, he has founded and nurtured the comparative theology section of the American Academy of Religion. Now we share an important cultural accident that bears upon comparative uh, theology as well. I taught at Fordham University in the decade after the Second Vatican Council when Frank was a student there. It was a wild place then. The Bronx Ontological Garden adjoining the Bronx Zoological and the Bronx uh, Botanical Gardens. <laughs> I was the first Protestant to teach philosophy or theology at Fordham and was shamed into becoming a comparative theologian by Father Thomas Berry. Most of you would know some of his work. Now, Frank cites the enthusiastic ideals of Nostra Aetate as motivating at least academic Catholicism of that time. And I was surely and enthusiastically welcomed as an exotic Protestant. As a Protestant, I probably was actually more of a threat to many of my Jesuit colleagues than a remote Hindu. And still, they welcomed me into the conversation. And they sent Frank to Kathmandu, which is a dangerous <laughs> thing. <laughs> We share a long history of enthusiasm in comparative theology, as well we should. I believe, and will argue tonight, that any theology whatsoever ought to rest upon a base of comparative theological erudition. Partly, this is because we live in a religiously diverse world and need to address theological ideas from whichever quarter they come as they bear upon our theological topics. In larger part, however, a comparative theological base is important because we theologians aim to get at the truth of our topic and are foolish not to learn from wherever we can. We should seek correction from wherever as we seek to be bold in getting to the heart of theological matters. Some in the academy would delegitimate any kind of theology as special pleading. The answer to that delegitimation is to be responsive to every criticism of bias. Our ultimate accountability as theologians is to whatever public has an interest in the issues. We do not have to agree with everyone, an impossible thing to do. Nevertheless, we have to be respectfully accountable 
Otherwise, we do theology a disservice. Now, what I've just said is not mere enthusiastic drum beating for comparative theology, although it is that, because it contains a significant emphasis with which Frank would probably disagree. He, of course, will say at the end whether he does or not, and I'll get to this shortly. But first, let me sketch the two approaches to comparative theology mentioned in the subtitle of this talk. In his Comparative Theology, Deep Learning Across Religious Borders, uh, Frank defines comparative theology this way. Comparative, th I'm quoting now, comparative theology, dash, comparative and theological, beginning to end, marks acts of faith seeking understanding, which are rooted in a particular faith tradition, but which from that foundation venture into learning from one or more faith traditions. This learning is sought for the sake of fresh theological insights that are indebted to the newly encountered tradition or traditions as well as the home tradition." End of quote. He explicitly distinguishes comparative theology from the theology of religions that he characterizes as follows, again a quote. The theology of religions is a theological discipline that discerns and evaluates the religious significance of other religious tradition, traditions in accord with the truths and goals defining one's own religion. It may be greatly detailed in respect to the nuances of the home tradition, but most often remains broadly general regarding the traditions that are being talked about. Theology itself, that's the end of that quote, he defines exclusively as faith-seeking understanding, working within a home tradition, and going beyond it. For him, both comparative theology and theology of religions are rooted within the faith of one's home tradition seeking understanding, but with supplementation by the study of the other traditions. The difference he sees between them is that comparative theology immerses itself deeply within the other tradition or traditions, while theology of religions makes broader generalizations. Uh, I do not see this as much of a difference in genre as it is a difference in theological style with a lot of middle ground. Catherine Cornell, too, drops the distinction of comparative theology from theology of religions and strengthens Frank's faith in one's home tradition seeking understanding to confessional theology. That's her word. She is constrained to distinguish comparative theology from comparative religions, which she characterizes as a somewhat scientific, neutral study of religions with no commitment to the outcome of the inquiry. She says, and I quote from Catherine Cornell, the goal of comparative theology, however, is not in the end the understanding of the other on its own terms, but the meaning of the other tradition or some element within it for one's own religious self-understanding. As such, it may be presumed that the ultimate interpretation of the other tradition will be colored by one's own tradition. Cornell goes on to say that this strong confessional perspecti perspectivism is a matter of humility, holding to more of a postmodern critical theory 
uh, position than Frank usually does. For both Frank and Catherine, and their followers in what might be justly dubbed the Boston College School of Comparative Theology, Comparative theology is faith-seeking understanding within one's home tradition, with that home tradition as its principal audience, though we all would sell books to whoever would buy them. So. <laughs> Comparative theology for this school aims to expand the home tradition's theology to learn from other traditions. Frank especially emphasizes getting as deep into other traditions' theologies as possible so that the depths of one's own tradition can learn from the depths of the other. Living in close collaboration with this approach for many years, I still am a bit astonished at the claim that this alone is what comparative theology is, and that others who claim to be doing it without the confessional commitment are doing something else. Are there not many ways of doing comparative theology? each with some good results. In the Comparative Religious Ideas Project 20 years ago, Frank was careful to compare only specific texts of specific authors, downplaying their representative status for the large traditions, and even saying that those texts represented only a certain period in their author's development. Very precise. Livia Cohen, on the other hand, insisted on speaking of Chinese religions as Taoism, Confucianism, Shamanism, and Buddhism mushed together uh, as Chinese religions with only trivial dif uh, differences. Anthony Salderini, I assume many of you know and remember him, speaking of Judaism, gave historical renditions of Judaism from biblical to contemporary times, addressing the comparative categories discussed by the project. Nomanul Haq explained the doctrinal positions in Islam relative to our categories in a fairly non-historical way. Malcolm David Eckel discussed Buddhism mainly as it showed our project's categories to be problematic, too philosophical, and too little therapeutic. Paula Fredrickson represented Christianity to differ from Judaism mainly with regard to the status of Jesus not with regard to conceptions of God, much confounding those, to the confounding of those who identify Christianity with the bloodshed over the Trinity. Now, I exaggerate the differences in approach somewhat, and we all learn from one another. Those are the rocks, the icebergs that Frank mentioned, trying to get all these things together. <clears throat> At the end, however, there were still as many different approaches to comparative theology as there were senior scholars in the project, and they all had their virtues. So why try to preempt the name of the discipline for just one approach? In Comparative Theology, Deep Learning Across Religious Borders, Frank writes insightfully about other approaches, including mine, and yet claims the title with a normative definition for his alone. Now, perhaps the real root of my resistance to comparative theology as faith-seeking understanding by supplementing a home tradition is simply a denominational one. I am a Protestant, and the Boston College School is Roman Catholic. To begin with what might be a caricature, the Church for Catholics is the vehicle of salvation, the medium of one's relation to God, 
and God's instrument of redemption. For theologically sophisticated Catholics, the Church's theology is an interweaving of many different traditions from first century Jewish Gentile theologies to patristic, Augustinian, Thomistic, uh, Tridentine, Kantian, Neo-Thomist, and 20th century existentialist theologies, plus a whole lot of others. All along the way, they have been enriching, there have been enriching debates with Syriac, Orthodox, Asian, African, and other theological traditions. Dialogues with Hinduism and Chinese religions go back as far as the Jesuits, and these have added important, subtle dimensions to the <clears throat> Roman Catholic theological firmament. When Boston College comparativists speak of faith-seeking understanding within and for a home tradition, they mean a critical and creative investment in contributing to this Roman Catholic theological firmament on the principle that locating here in this firmament is how to be a good Catholic Christian. Cornel especially urges that members of other faiths relate to their faith in doing comparison. Now, to Protestants, the first thing we think about the church is that it is at best a broken vessel. Luther and Calvin saw the Roman Catholic Church as a corrupt political institution that in fact often kept people away from God, a separator, not a mediator. True religion, Protestants think, has to do with the direct relations between individuals and God. As a Methodist, uh, I am heir to the Protestant version of the Anglican tradition that sees divine grace in just about everything, including the church. <laughs> Despite the Anglican church's origin in the politics of the annulment of one of Henry VIII's marriages and its penchant for aristocratic manners, the Wesleyan tradition, or at least my part of it, is grateful for the church as bearing grace so long as it is not taken too seriously. It is certainly not to be identified too closely with God. Wesleyans find God's prevenient grace in Catholics, Orthodox, Anabaptists, Secularists, Muslims, Buddhists, and the New Atheists. Sometimes Protestants, recognizing the social character of human life, which we do sometimes, have attempted to create and enforce divinely faithful communities, such as the Puritans here in Boston and the Pilgrims uh, down in Plymouth. Nevertheless, the witch burnings and other extreme enforcements seemed too much like the Catholic Inquisition, which Protestants have generally taken to be proof positive that the church is not the hand of God. Most educated Protestants now are aware of the complicity of Protestantism in slavery and post-Civil War racism, in bigotry against sexual minorities, and in many kinds of warmongering and economic exploitation. Therefore, my Protestant default position regarding my home tradition is to be critical of it, to emphasize how the different theological traditions really do not interweave so well, but mark serious, usually unresolved differences. To undertake religious, pardon me, to undertake serious theology requires loosening the holes of the biases in the home tradition, not tightening them by deeper participation. 
One of the chief ways of loosening the unconscious bondage of a faith tradition is to understand much more about it. Here, I agree with the Boston College School that Christians who are serious about theology need to examine the Christian theological tradition with care and nuance, but without assuming that it all somehow hangs together and is somehow worth affirming as a trumping starting point for theology. One of the ripest ironies is that Cornell has adopted the term confessionalism to mean theology practiced within a home tradition. Confessions were ways by which early Protestants marked out their different allegiances from one another and from Rome. Profession of faith in a confession was a way of gaining admission to a Protestant community that thought it had the right way to live before God, and the confessions were used as catechisms. The Bartian branch of Protestant theology still holds to the label of confessionalism, and it is adamant to say that any work of theology is only a fallible and likely wrong interpretation of God. True Christianity is not a religion at all, according to Bart, but just God's truth that we dimly understand. For Bart, comparative religion has nothing to do with Christianity, which cannot be compared as a religion. More liberal Protestants, such as I, regard confessions as failed attempts, along with biblicism and experiments in member-only religious communities, to deal with issues of authority in religion. As a Protestant, I look to comparative theology as a way to gain perspective on my home tradition. Of course, my home tradition needs to be examined critically and in detail. Nevertheless, the perspective of other traditions helps to see what is really going on within Christianity, Protestantism, Methodism, Missouri Methodism. <laughs> Indeed, I believe one cannot be serious about theological reflections within one's home tradition without first having external as well as internal perspectives on it. Faith-seeking understanding in today's world that is not also seriously comparative cannot be serious theology, however practical it might be for organizing and nourishing the faithful in some community or other. I agree with the slogan attributed to Wilfred Cantwell Smith, Frank's distinguished predecessor in this institution, that to understand only one religion is to understand none. This sentiment is part of my enthusiasm for comparative theology expressed earlier. Non-comparative theology is dangerous without it. Now, <clears throat> to consider theology to be faith-seeking understanding might itself be a profound mistake, which is a sharper criticism I'm making of comparative theology as theology of religions than my expression of Protestant bias. In a trivial sense, of course, everyone's theological journey, if it has any punch at all, is faith-seeking understanding from childhood onward. In this trivial sense, Augustine was a faith-seeking understanding theologian from his mother's knees. Who better than he pursued deep learning across religious borders? By faith, whose understanding he sought, however, 
Augustine meant the Christianity in which he invested himself when he decided to become a Christian in the garden after reading Paul's imperative to put on Christ. Uh, the, the Latin word for that is invest in Christ, but it's put on the clothes of Christ. He affirmed himself to be a member of Christ's way, abandoned his licentious ways and his family, and pursued a Christian life that called him to ecclesiastical leadership and theological work. Now here's my point. He adopted himself into Christianity and commenced to transform its theology probably more than any Christian theologian before or since. He dug in to resolving its confusions and inventing new ways forward. He wrote commentaries on the Bible without knowing Hebrew or Greek. He improved upon patristic theology in translation. He did not immerse himself especially in what Christians believed theologically, but rather in what they should believe, all things considered. All things considered included Platonism, Neoplatonism, Manichaeanism, comparatively understood. His comparative theology came before his uh, Augustinian Christian theology. I think of Augustine as an early liberal Protestant. <laughs> in some respects, in some respects, not all issues. <clears throat> At stake here is what is meant by being a member of a tradition, by having a home tradition. That's not an easy phrase. Religious membership is itself an important comparative category, and the methodological discussions of comparative theology commonly have been insensitive to the various meanings that membership can have. Generally, we have taken membership to be a matter of religious identity. To be religious in most of our discussions means to belong tradition, to a tradition, such as Catholicism or Protestantism. The Comparative Religious Ideas Project compared Buddhism, Chinese religion, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism. That's an alphabetical order, so there's no. <laughs> uh, what it means to have one of those religious identities, however, differs greatly among them. Within each of them are countless variations in what it means to be in its theological tradition or traditions, and some of them are very important. Now that we know how complex religious identity is, with many of us enjoying several, I advocate the more the better, uh, we should pay attention to what it means to have a home theological tradition or a faith. It means very many different things for different comparativists. A couple of years ago, uh, Catherine Cornell presented uh, the paper from which I quoted earlier at a meeting of the Boston Theological Society. Many, if not most of those in attendance, thought of themselves as comparative theologians, in some sense or other. But only Catherine herself qualified under her definition, and the rest of us felt unfairly delegitimated. The reason had nothing to do with any comparisons. Rather, none of the rest of us related to a home tradition in the confessional way she required, not even the Catholics. In the Comparative Religious Ideas Project, the only Catholic other than Frank was Tony Salarini, who presented Judaism as a dialectic among many traditions, often in serious opposition to one another, not as a singular deep tradition that many Jews would affirm as having trumping and limiting power. 
Uh, nor did uh, Tony regard his own Catholic faith that way. Now, let me turn to my own approach to comparative theology, which I define not by the theological commitments of the comparativists, but by the subject matter, religious or theological ideas, and how they are well studied. Sometimes I have used the phrase comparative religious ideas rather than comparative theology because of the sensitivity of many Jewish thinkers to theology, which they take to be only a Christian tradition. But here I'm going to be happy with comparative theology. The first question for me is, what is the subject matter of comparative theology? By no means is this an innocent question to be answered by listing the main theological ideas of some one religious tradition, say, the Christian theological questions of God, Christ, Spirit, Church, Revelation, Grace, and the rest. That is the very bias that makes academics and theologians of every other tradition suspicious of Christians doing comparative theology. Rather, the nature of the subject matter is itself an extremely dialectical problem. On the one hand, we have to look at the different traditions to be compared, to see the various things they say, and on the other, at the respects in which we are comparing them. The respects in which to compare things I call comparative categories. An initially obvious such category is God. What do various religions say about God? Upon comparative discussion, however, the interesting respect for comparisons is what religions take to be ultimate. And God seems to be limited to religions that develop personalistic metaphors for the ultimate. Lots of other religions believe in lots of gods, too many gods, thousands of gods in, in Buddhism, but they don't function as the ultimate, which is what you're interested in making the comparisons about. Even among personalistic conceptions of the ultimate, there's a huge difference between most forms of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which emphasize aspects of creativity, agency, divine intention, will, attachment, judgment, and reason. And most forms of Buddhism and Hinduism, which think that those are precisely the attributes of ordinary personhood that cause the trouble and need to be flushed out in favor of the metaphors of something like pure consciousness. Just as important as finding out what the traditions say is the task of continually revising the comparative category in light of how ultimacy can be defined that respects the different schemes being compared. To respect the various versions of ultimacy does not at all mean finding a way to make them compatible. It means rather that they can be understood as instances of conceptions of ultimacy without being distorted by the preeminence of one or several preferred instances. Actual comparisons are always fallible and subject from, to correction from at least two sides. More data for comparison might be discovered and the new understanding of the respect of comparison, the comparative category, might be needed. This sense of always being in the middle of comparative inquiry and never at the conclusion is complicated by the fact that many theological ideas function in religious life in many places on a continuum from super sophistication to popular religion. Because theology itself ranges along that, that continuum, a given theological idea 
for instance, Thomas Aquinas' conception of God as the pure act of to be means one thing when philosophical theologians speak strictly with no suggestion of personal traits or intentions, and quite another when articulated analogically in biblical terms. Another continuum exists between interpreting theological ideas with regard to pressures for transcendence and interpreting them with regard to pressures for intimacy within human experience. Another continuum exists between interpreting theological ideas more or less in themselves and interpreting them as they bear upon other domains of life. For instance, how God might be interpreted in terms of the moral life. Mark Jordan's exquisite interpretation of Aquinas's moral theory does not find much role for the act of to be that has no potential for doing anything whatsoever, such as flowing. Comparative theological inquiry has to be at least this dialectical in studying the theological ideas in many shifting places on such continuum, following shifts in meaning as the inquiry moves from place to place. The wisdom of Frank's attempt to compare only particular texts of particular authors with particular places in religious life is apparent in light of all of this. Nevertheless, the more particular, the less involved theology is with living religion, and the less the comparisons might mean if theology means something like the intellectual side of religion. Once we say that what is being compared are theological ideas that fall under comparative categories, and that categories are vulnerable to correction so as not to bias the ideas compared, we can and should back away from saying, as we often have, that we're comparing different traditions. Instead, we're comparing different ideas about the same topic that occur in several traditions. Moreover, each tradition often has conflicting ideas on the topic within itself, and often parallels uh, exist ab about such conflicts among several different traditions, such as free will versus determinism debates that come up in a very large number of traditions. By defining the topic in terms of the comparative categories, we can listen, loosen the hold of naive assumptions about different religious traditions. Note their internal diversity, their mutual borrowings, their sensitivities to different historical periods and social locations, and a whole host of other variables, assumptions that have made the comparison of traditions so clunky in the past. Once we problematize the notion of religious traditions to be compared, we can turn instead to the notion of a religious situation to ask, what the various theological ideas are for comparison, and then trace back how they developed and played off against one another prior to that situation. I've developed this approach to, through a situation looking back, uh, rather through, than through some idealized identity of a tradition looking forward to some founder uh, in my book on religion, Religion, Philosophical Theology, Volume 3. Once we look for theological ideas on a topic, for comparison, according to their presence within a religious situation, we can lighten up on needing official religious sanctions for the sources of those ideas 
and accept secular and other non-officially religious sources for them. On serious theological topics, such as the nature of whatever is ultimate, the grounds for goodness and human obligation, the nature of the self, how to engage others deeply, the meaning of life, and so forth. In the modern world are many sources for relevant ideas that should be grasped in comparative understanding that would explicitly reject religious identity or authority. We can acknowledge that the great religious traditions have provided the imaginative formulations and historical developments of the great theological ideas without denying that the discussion since the European Enlightenment has moved far beyond, and sometimes in opposition to religious communities of faith. Of course, I should put my own cards on the table and say that philosophy often has been and still is the source of many of the most important theological ideas. In European Christianity and Judaism, the religious communities have continued to have their own in-house theologians from the early modern period to the present day. The exciting theological ideas, however, have come from Descartes, Galileo, Hobbes, Locke, Spinoza, Berkeley, Hume, Kant, Hegel, Fichte, Jacobi, Schelling, Schleiermacher, Kierkegaard, Peirce, William James, Marcel, Heidegger, Whitehead, and Dewey, at least according to my idea of what's exciting. <laughs> and other people would have different philosophers. And these are the ideas that have then later come to influence the in-house denominational theologians, the confessional theologians in the Protestant world. <clears throat> Furthermore, beginning with the patristics, Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas, up through the moderns, it has been the philosophical considerations that have driven the theological ideas to greater sophistication regarding their meaning in actual religious life. Only a philosopher, such as Frank, could keep things straight in comparing Christian notions of love with Hindu bhakti notions of love. Most of our great religious cultural traditions have not distinguished theology from philosophy as much as the Western ones have. And it is important to take pains to involve philosophy within comparative theology. This is especially so in the American situation, where at least Protestant confessional theology has been anti-philosophical since the influence of Barth. Given the orientation of comparative theology by subject matter, that's my proposal, I would say that the methods used for the comparison ought to include any that produce interesting results, of which there are many kinds. One kind of comparative theology can be in the genre of intellectual history, investigating how A says one thing and B another about the topic of a comparative category, explaining the respects in which the positions are different and similar. Good comparative intellectual historians can achieve great historical depth and conceptual nuance. Some people would say that this is the only kind of comparative theology that ought to be allowed in the academy. While I disagree with that limitation, I am happy to encourage comparative intellectual history of, in, in theology. As I said at the beginning, I think that any kind of theology ought to be erudite in comparative intellectual history of theology of all sorts in all interesting theological comparative categories. Like Frank and Catherine Corneille, however, I also want some comparative 
theology, at least my comparative theology, to aim at theological truth. So I like that. That does not mean lining up an array of theological ideas on a given topic and picking the best one, although comparison sometimes starts that way. Frank gives the best characterization of my position, quoting him again now. Due perhaps to the combination of his areas of expertise, talking about me, American pragmatism, process thought, Confucian traditions, Neville values comparison as a process of increasingly refined approximations crafted wisely. Words, methods of comparison, and the substantive tenets of a tradition achieve a certain balance in comparative study, but they are always still open to adjustments as further insights occur across cultural and religious borders. The expert comparativist masters both the particular and the general and can explain the rules by which we learn interreligiously. Comparison is ultimately an art. End of the quote from Frank. Now, I wish I could actually do what he rightly says <laughs> I value in comparison. The upshot of this art, I hope, is the increasing perfection of the comparative categories so that we can understand the various perspectives brought upon it in concrete theological thinking, seeing the strengths and weaknesses of all, and finally coming to understand the topics in subtle, critical terms. This kind of understanding of the topics that theologians treat is getting at the truth about those topics. Any understanding of the topic enriched by comparative precision is still fallible. With comparative theological art, however, <clears throat> it is possible to get at some very profound truths. I myself have come to believe that in the end, theological fallibilism tips over into theological apophasis. But getting there is where the guiding truth of theology lies. Frank's Frank graciously says that the difference between us is one of style, quoting him, while his, Neville's, study of Chinese thought draws him toward subtle distinctions perfected with an air of detachment, my, Frank's, own work moves toward deeper engagement in stubborn particularities, risking an irreversible involvement in the truth and the ways of the Hindu communities I study, end quote. To the, degree, to the degree that my engagement with the theologies in life that I compare is shallow, it is at fault. And my theology is faulty all over the place in this way, among other ways. To the degree that Frank's engagement in stubborn particularities does not work through subtle distinctions with enough detachment to avoid importing bias, it too is at fault. And thank goodness we both practice a religion that specializes in accepting people with faults. <laughs> in those lines I quoted from him, I interpret Frank as at least open to my heuristic claim that commitment to certain ideas as true, for us comparative theologians, should come at the end of inquiry, not the beginning. Not that it ever ends, but down the line. Of course, for us who are personally religious, there are theological commitments all along the way. They are vulnerable to correction in the process of theological inquiry, however, 
and where we come out after years of work might be quite different from where we started. Whereas Cornel is a confessional Catholic all along the way, with no pretense to understand the others in their own terms, only in terms of what they might mean for her enlarging Catholicism, Frank does indeed want to put himself inside the communities, Hindu communities he studies. In the long run, this might lead him to a critical view of some of the contents of what Cornel takes the Catholic confession to be. Luckily, we have our denominational default positions to fall back on. As a typical Protestant, I can always say that nobody got it right except me, and here is my confession. As a Catholic, he can always say the most outrageous thing is something that the Christian tradition has always and everywhere said, <laughs> as Catholics have claimed at each point of serious innovation. Phew. Thank the Tao for helpful stereotypes. Permit me one more remark about the subject matter of comparative theology. Because the understanding of any one theological position on a topic depends upon, or at least is vulnerable to correction by, any other theological position on that topic, there is an implicit obligation to compare anything that might be relevant. Comparative theology, I think, implies a systematic ambition to address the theological audiences of any position that might have an interest in the topic. Of course, this is an impossible obligation to fulfill. Who can learn enough? Who can know enough of the languages so as not to be shallow? I once asked Father George Glantzman, a Fordham University Roman Catholic comparativist of ancient Near Eastern cultures, how many of those languages he knew. And he replied, all of them. <laughs> However, he knew none of the Far Eastern languages. Most of us are like uh, George and Frank, limiting ourselves to the few languages in a culture into which we can specialize to the relative neglect of the others. Any theological topic, however, connects with just about every other theological topic, directly or indirectly. We therefore are in need of correction from those other possibly compared partners, and thus are always guilty for not taking them into account. My style, in contrast to Frank's and Catherine Cornell's, has been to trade depth for perspectival comprehensiveness. I build my theology on a base of comparative theology, but my theology is a systematic philosophical theology that I turn back on the comparative base to line up new comparative perspectives to investigate. I also believe that we should do comparative theology collaboratively with experts in many different traditions to correct for both bias and shallowness. Um, I have to say, after our experience, that collaborative comparative theology is too exhausting, however. And so most of us are reduced to imagining what the professor down the hall would say. Because I define comparative theology in terms of its subject matter, not in terms of the antecedent theological commitments of the comparativists, what should I say about who can be a comparativist? A good comparativist is anyone who can do the job well. Since there are so many different parts of the job, there are many backgrounds and skills, for instance, languages, philosophy, dialogical finesse, uh, participant observation, and the like, 
As to having a personal religious commitment, I think this is wholly unnecessary so long as one has the depth necessary to do a good job at whatever it is one is doing in comparative theology. Nor is it necessary to want to come to theological truth in order to do many things of great worth in comparative theology, although I personally am a, a fan of the truth, of, of, of getting to the truth, not just marking. <clears throat> if a comparativist does want to come to measured, critical, and committed theological truth, even systematic theological truth of the sort to which I aspire, commitment to a faith community is not necessary, at least not at the beginning. It is not faith-seeking understanding, but understanding-seeking faith. Given the enormous variety of forms of theological and practical religious companionship, Many quite far from common denominational membership or tradition adherence, <coughs> a comparative spiritual companions can be of just about any sort and connected in just about any way. Or a good comparativist can be a loner with no companions. Not that I would recommend that, but it's possible to do good comparative work. To be sure, we are all um, historically located and need to be critically aware and quite public about that. I am a Methodist from Missouri and am an ordained elder who was once chaplain of Boston University. My special pastoral interest is in gay weddings and United Methodists wrongly and vainly forbid me to perform them. I'm also a Confucian holding offices in Confucian societies with recognition from leading Confucian scholars my latest book shows me taking dictation from Confucius. <laughs> you can look at that afterwards. I try to be honest about how these historical locations make a difference to my work. That Frank is an Irish Catholic from Brooklyn, rather than a black Catholic from the Congo, surely makes a difference to his work too. That his name is Francis Xavier Clooney is not unrelated to why he studies India rather than China. Matteo Ricci, Clooney, probably would have sounded odd in his Irish Brooklyn parish and to his family. <laughs> our historical accidents affect, but do not delegitimate, our comparative work, marking only further vulnerabilities for correction. As a summary provocative plea, let me suggest that comparative theology that starts with a faith-seeking understanding, confessional commitment, is really only a theology of religions within that committed base. It can make wonderful contributions to comparative theology in many senses, but it is a drag when it comes to making viable theological claims out of comparative work. In fact, despite intent and with great surprise, it reduces theology to sociology. As a Catholic, or a Methodist, or a Hindu, this is what I conclude about theology from comparative theology. This is a sociological statement about Catholics, Methodists, or Hindus, not a theological recommendation for how to think or live in face of ultimacy. Comparative theological inquiry can lead us toward better theology. Have faith. Thank you.
So a couple of things uh, as we move forward. First of all, thank you very much, Bob, for a splendid lecture. Bob being Bob um, provided the text about a month ago and just had it already. No last minute agonizing over the text and so on. So I appreciate it very much. Uh, secondly, uh, some may wonder why Catherine Cornell is not here tonight, uh, being uh, mentioned many times in the paper. She's on sabbatical in Europe uh, this semester, so that was a good reason. She wouldn't fly back for some reason to be here this evening. Uh, there are many things that I could say in regarding this, which I won't say because I cleverly planned to excuse myself from having to respond to this paper. But I was thinking of some of the dichotomies or tensions that might arise. Uh, I wrote down some of them, theory and reading as two different uh, ways into, into materials, Protestant and Catholic dispositions, which Bob mentioned, words and sacrament as having different dynamics, <coughs> preferences for generalization or particularity, perhaps studying China versus studying India might lead to all kinds of differences. Confucian tradition, Hindu tradition might open up different doors. And perhaps even within the church, uh, perhaps as a, an elder of the church, a, a model of service as opposed to the sacramental role of a priest at the altar. There may be different things going on here. Um, but as I said, I planned this such that I wouldn't have to respond tonight. We can talk about these things afterward. Because I thought it would be better and more interesting to move on to the younger generation, our current doctoral students, instead of the old um, dinosaurs fighting with each other once more, that we would um, instead invite some of the younger voices in the field to speak. I've given each of them up to 10 minutes, and at nine minutes I'll start waving papers in their faces to remind them that they finished at 10. But basically to have three people give responses, and they'll go in this order, BU, Harvard, and BC. I don't know if that's a path up or a path down, but we can <laughs> see. Um, Bin Sung from BU, uh, who is uh, currently working on a dissertation, Creatio Ex Nihilo and Sheng Sheng, or Birth Birth. Descartes and Chu Chi on creation, intending to clarify whether there is and how to characterize a transcendent dimension in Confucian metaphysics through a comparative approach. And at Harvard here, Shoshana Razel, on persons and objects, a comparative theological study of legal agency and ritual efficacy, perhaps with close attention to Jewish and Hindu traditions. And then Wan Jehur at BC, who is working on embodiment and transformation of suffering in Edith Stein's spiritual writings and Tibetan Buddha's Lojong texts. So a number of different traditions are brought in here, three different schools, different perspectives, and Binsang goes first. <laughs> So many thanks for Professor Clooney's uh, invitation to respond to Professor Neville's speech. The title of my response is uh, Faith-Seeking Understanding versus Understanding-Seeking Faith. The task to respond to my own advisor is not easy, <laughs> especially when it happens during the stage of my PhD program when I am composing my prospectus. <laughs> Nevertheless, the following scenario confirms my faith towards my advisor and thus mitigates quite a bit my anxiety that is caused by this uneasy job. When I read Professor Neville's own words, uh, quote, as a Protestant, I look to comparative theology as a way to gain perspective on my home tradition, quote. I say to myself, hmm, faith-seeking understanding versus understanding-seeking faith will be a good title for my response. Later, I indeed read Professor Neville's other words, quote, 
comparative theology is not faith-seeking understanding, but understanding-seeking faith, quote, in the concluding part of his speech. So this proof that I indeed understand my advisor and <laughs> thus have faith towards him. The major reason that I find it resonate with the understanding-seeking faith approach of comparative theology is the tradition where I grew up and which I am studying, Ruism, which is wrongly called Confucianism for two centuries because of the faulty approach of comparative theology taken by early Christian missionaries, such as Madhu Ritchie and James Leggy. You know, I see Professor Sun nodded. So I know uh, you must agree with me. Uh, <laughs> and this is obviously another topic for another time. But I still call Confucianism Ruism here. Ruism is not a revelatory, uh, revelatory tradition. From its first beginning, Confucius taught that not to yield to any teacher if the cause of humanity, Ren, is at stake. So the Ren means the spiritual goal of human uh, self-cultivation. Again, in the most sophisticated uh, uh, form of Ruism, the Song and the Ming Ruism in the late medieval China, we heard a common commitment to scholarly critical thinking from virtually all schools of Ruism, such as Zhu Xi, Wang Yangming, Lu Xiuyuan. In other words, although these Ruist teachers fiercely disagree and debated each other in key metaphysical and uh, ethical issues, they are faithful towards the same thing that Confucius was once committed to, that is not to yield to anybody if the cause of humanity is at stake. In this way, the Ruist way of life is uh, grounded in a humanistic basis, trying to have everything understood and practicable. And then this way of life organically reaches out and beyond so that the, out, so that the humanistic practice is invested with deep spiritual and transcendent meanings. Because of this peculiar feature of Ruist uh, spirituality, as a, a Ruist scholar and, uh, uh, and philosopher, one of the most difficult terms that I learned about comparative theology during my study in the Great Boston area is confession. First, the barrier is from language. I cannot find a comparable Chinese word to correctly translate this concept. Second, the barrier is also philosophical. I don't know who I should confess to and where I should make my confession, except that if confession uh, is understood in, in Neville's uh, Protestant way, I can vaguely say that I make a confession to my own heart if I sincerely pursue my ruist learning that is widely open to all relevant resources of human civilization to resolve social and spiritual issues that humanity is facing today. Nevertheless, even if confession can be understood as such, I doubt every human being is confessional in a certain degree, as long as we think or say anything. So this vague meaning of confession will make its use suspicious if it is treated as a watershed word to differentiate different kinds of comparative theology. In a word, I appreciate my advisor to pass out this uniquely uh, confessional approach of comparative theology so that the traditions such as Ruism can be included in the uh, academic discipline called comparative theology. However, I do not yield to my teacher when the cause of humanity is at stake. So I would like to address one dimension of my own approach of comparative theology, which is different from uh, my advisor. 
At the end of his speech, Professor Neville emphasized uh, how personal religious commitment is unnecessary to comparative theology for a variety of reasons. Instead, from a, a Ruist perspective, although I fully endorse the impartial, non-confessional approach of comparative theology that is fully committed to scholarly critical thinking, please allow me to equally emphasize how important a personal commitment to one's home tradition or home culture is for uh, inter-religious studies and comparative theology. In my view, there are two kinds of biases. One is beneficial and uh, the other is harmful. The benefits of bias is the horizon of one's understanding for anything in any tradition, just as Gadamer has uh, brilliantly argued. These kind of biases are the necessary facility by which a pursuer of religious truth creatively learns from the other traditions. These biases are constitutive in the sense that the beginning of understanding cannot be without them. And they are also vulnerable in the sense that the pursuers are alert to their biasedness and thus prepare to correct or even give them up at moments when new comparative data arrive. In contrast, the harmful bias is the one that a comparativist, despite its constitutive rule, would not give it up even when he or she is urged by the rectifying force released by continuous interreligious studies and dialogue. For example, if you have an idea of ultimate reality as a supreme personal deity, and then construe the Chinese term Tian or Shangdi as a personal god, at the beginning of your study of Ruist texts, this is beneficial. However, if you hold this idea of ultimate reality is the only legitimate one, and deny there's anything alternative in the rich Ruist metaphysical tradition, even if you learn enough about it, this is harmful. Therefore, if everything left by my home tradition is all about the beneficial biases that are facilitative to my inter-religious studies, I say welcome to them with all my heart. This means that I do not think a personal commitment to one's home tradition is trivial in regard to comparative theology, even understood in Professor Neville's sense. In my view, a deep concern about the historical and the contemporary predicaments that one's home tradition experiences is one of the most important resources for allowing comparative theology to have a deep historical consciousness and thus allowing all people from each side of the dialogue to feel involved in our comparative work. I will conclude my response with the following, also final confession. One of my biggest motives to pursue the study of comparative theology is to understand why traditional Chinese culture experienced such a difficult time in early modern China when Ruism was harshly criticized by both radicalized Chinese intellectuals and Western observers. Without this deep concern with the history that my home tradition was experiencing, I may not succeed to find Boston the wonderful Boston colloquium of comparative theology, including Professor Clooney, Professor Cornell, Professor Neville, and all the um, uh, wonderful friends here. You are my companions and mentors who are faithful to comparative theology and inter-religious studies. Thanks.
Now let's hope my battery doesn't die. My printer conked out as I left the house. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Good evening. <laughs> um, this moment reminds me of a story. Somewhat of a legend now in the modern Orthodox community at large of a yeshiva student heading home to New York from, his, from Israel after his gap year in Gush Etzion. Upon boarding the plane, he finds himself seated beside none other than Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, the brilliant and formidable head of his yeshiva, the son-in-law of the equally brilliant and formidable Rabbi Dr. Joseph B. Soloveitchik. The young man is instantly stricken in pa with panic as he realizes that the next 12 hours bequeathed to him represent the opportunity, nay, the command to convey impressive words of Torah to his revered rabbi, or at the very least to pose a sophisticatedly articulated question which would impress his esteemed teacher and make him proud that he was none other than an exemplar student at the yeshiva. Uh, sorry. Yeah, so much for that. Um, I lost my line. Okay. Even as he racked his brains to come up with the best possible question, he eagerly anticipated the cherished words of Torah that he would learn in return. The plane took off, as he thought, as fear, awe, and adrenaline pumped through his veins, making him feel heady. Even as his mind wrote ethereal drafts and shredded them, he swallowed hard. Finally, a small repast was presented to the passengers in the form of bagels and cream cheese, and it occurred to the young man that he could ask him a halachic ritual law question as to whether or not one needed to wash hands with a blessing before taking part in this meal, given the ambiguous classification of bagels as bread, given their being stuck in a seat on an airplane rather than sitting down to a meal in a dining room where water is easily accessible, etc. That was it. He had his question. Oh, how impressed Rav Lichtenstein would be as he displayed both his intellect and his devotion in the precise and timely articulation of his critical question. He swallows hard. His hands are shaking. He turns to his left, and with a croak, he says, Rav Lichtenstein. The head of the yeshiva turns to face him. The boy's heart feels like it's thwapping through the vein on the left side of his neck. Yes, asks the rabbi. The boy takes a deep breath. Bagels. He blurts out, <laughs> bagels, he murmurs. So here I am, acutely humbled at being asked by two luminaries in the field, Francis Clooney and Robert Neville, to speak as an emerging scholar in comparative theology to respond to Robert Neville's lecture. Lucky for me, as I witnessed in Neville's last year's comparative theology workshop, and in Clooney over the years as my academic advisor and Jesuit Rebbe, these two great scholars are luminaries in their deep human sensitivity as much as they are in their brilliant research. So it is from the bottom of my heart that I open my thoughts titled, A Rabbinic Lens on Comparative Theology by saying, bagels. <laughs> okay. Much as bagels for the poor student were shorthand for a whole bundle of questions as to the nature of how Judaism understands the essence of a bagel, this quick response is an effort to take some quick bites from the discussion of the nature of comparative theology at hand. A parenthetical statement made by Professor Neville at the opening of his section on comparative theology as a trans-religious discipline caught my eye. He says, Sometimes I've used the phrase comparative religious ideas rather than comparative theology because of the sensitivity of many Jewish thinkers to theology. 
which they take to be only a Christian discipline. Here, I am happy with comparative theology. Firstly, I thank Professor Neville for making me feel like family by not resorting to alternate terminology for my sake. But this is only a partial quip. I do understand that Neville is being sensitive, concerned lest comparative theology be seen as an engagement in a hegemonic project, as Soloveitchik's concern perhaps articulates in the following quote from his essay, Confrontation, written in the early 60s. Says Soloveitchik, we are not ready for a meeting with another faith community in which we shall become an object of observation, judgment, and evaluation, even though the community of the many may then condescendingly display a sense of compassion with the community of the few and advise the many not to harm or persecute the few. Such an encounter would convert the, the personal Adam-Eve meeting into a hostile confrontation between a subject knower and a knowable object. We do not indeed, we do not intend to play the part of the object encountered by dominating man. Soliciting commiseration is incongruous with the character of a democratic confrontation. There should rather be insistence upon one's inalienable rights as a human being created by God. In response, I state with conviction that terminology and style aside, Neither Robert Neville nor Frank Clooney have any intention of engaging in any such hegemonic reductionist scholarship. Both scholars are acutely sensitive to the need for purity of motive and to the need for repeated self-examination and critique. So while we might talk about subject matter or we might talk about the uh, faith position that the individual scholar is anchored in, to me, the emphasis I believe is in the motivation of each scholar to the <laughs> to the oh, sorry um, to the project at hand. Um, sorry, I'm out. No, sorry. <laughs> no, okay, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, truthfully, as a scholar having been raised steeped in rabbinics, replete with its systemic terminology, matrices, and hermeneutics, I find no threat whatsoever inherent in terms such as theology, nor in terms such as sacramental. What is the encounter with a term in any language, culture, religion, legal or ritual legal system, but an opportunity to examine its parameters as articulated within the cosmology of the new encounter? and to bring it home, so to speak, to see how this new word or idea might chafe within or blend with, in my case, the rabbinic thought milieu, fit in or look strained in a rabbinic sentence. In the worst case, it won't fit. In the best case, this might just be just the lens needed to solve a formerly vexing rabbinic case. <laughs> I want, I, as we're talking about hegemony, I feel that it's important to, to say that there's, uh, that hegemony can um, be a perspective that's taken by any side. And that uh, an important thing that I often stress in sermons in communities where I may not be invited back a second time, uh, <laughs> is that um, there's the term amsigula, um, the, the chosen nation, the, the verbs um, um, can mean um, chosen, elevated. Um, I, when I speak about that concept, I take the root of that word, 
which is also the same root as to accommodate or to, to um, become accustomed to or to the inverse of being part of humanity and the mission is towards humanity. So it's a matter, I feel like, in terminology and in terms of theory, that it's a matter of the perspective of the receiver and the perspective of the speaker that both motivations are important and that I wouldn't want to do away with the terminology that's specific to different mm -hmm. systems so as to um, bleach or, I don't know, um, make things, uh, accommodate too much the ear of uh, the other, so to speak, to the point where the flavor goes missing. Um, Okay, I, I'm going to skip to a, um, two, two more points, one about community and one about particularity. Okay, so I'll make it quick. Okay, um, um, so about community. I know that uh, you speak, Professor Neville, about community and belonging to a particular faith community that can be um, maybe off-putting or difficult for other, other scholars who may not belong to a community. So I just wanted to say that I, as well as uh, Professor Clooney, um, Catholics and, and rabbinic Jews, I think, are all aware of the fraught nature of belonging in any community. And just like I quipped before about where I can't speak again, so um, I don't think anyone truly belongs to a home community. And I think that if we engage in the mission of this kind of scholarship and seeking the truth um, everywhere and in all of humanity, then that mission um, inevitably puts us in a situation where we're not always anchor truly in a home community, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. okay. <laughs> Good evening. First, I would like to sincerely thank Professor Clooney and Professor Neville for allowing me to be a part of tonight's conversation. And I am very honored to offer a response to Dr. Neville together with my friends Ben and Shoshana. I would like to offer just a few reflections in my response. To begin, I want to point out what I, I'm a student at Boston College studying comparative theology, what I as someone who largely accepts the methodological arguments of Drs. Clooney and Cornell, have learned from Dr. Neville's paper. First, I think it is very important for me to heed Dr. Neville's forceful reminder that a home religious tradition can be a very ambiguous thing, fraught with internal conflict and unresolved differences. And I think he is right to suggest that we have to problematize the notion of a unified home tradition and critically take into account its inner diversity and complexity instead of assuming, assuming it as a given starting point. A second point of learning has to do with Dr. Neville's particular development of the notion of comparative categories. Dr. Neville further develops the idea of comparative categories when he proposes doing comparative theology, not by marking out one's faith commitment, but by looking at a particular, quote, religious situation, end quote, and what diverse theological positions came into play to address that situation. Focusing on religious ideas about the same topic, i.e. the comparative category, within a particular situation opens the door to a multiplicity of sources, religious and secular, that are relevant to that context. This contributes to gaining progressively clearer understanding of the truth of that topic, topics such as ultimate reality and the nature of the self. 
This accords with Dr. Neville's statement, quote, to undertake serious theology requires loosening the holds of the biases in the home tradition, not tightening them by deeper participation, end quote. His inclusive approach then makes central to comparative theology an openness to correction from sources outside of one's own tradition as well as outside the discipline of theology. And Dr. Neville clarifies for me why this approach is important for advancing comparative theology and how one can engage it. In addition to these valuable learnings from Dr. Neville, there are many more, but I'm just highlighting these two. I have several issues and questions that I would like to raise about his paper. My first point begins with the question, does orienting comparative theology by subject matter through the continual refinement of comparative categories prevent importing bias more effectively than Clooney and Cornell's approach? For Clooney and Cornell are also concerned about avoiding bias, yet they address this problem by making explicit their religious location and the normative interests and concepts that form their basic theological framework. I do not read them as setting up an idealized notion of a static home tradition, although I think that is a danger <laughs> which needs to be addressed more fully in the so-called Boston College Comparative Theology School, which I, I guess I'm a member of now. Um, instead, I read them as taking a critical stance toward their own situatedness in order to clarify their agenda from the outset before approaching a religious other. And in light of the Christian knack for colonizing others, I would think that this is a minimal requirement for engaging in comparison from a Christian theological standpoint. Although Dr. Neville seems aware of this nuance in both Clooney and Cornell's work, when he is summarizing their positions, although he's aware of it when he's summarizing their positions, I sometimes feel like he seems to disregard it when he moves from summary to critique. To raise a related issue, I am not clear that Dr. Neville's proposed model of topic or subject matter focused comparative theology adequately addresses the question of location. What is the institutional and communal nexus in which the comparative theologian is located and which shapes his or her normative questions and concepts? I'm only going on the paper that, that I've read. Certainly the topic-focused model of comparative theology does not work in a vacuum, nor does the theologian's work produce results which do not have potential impact on concrete communities. Who or what then are these communities and institutions which form the ecology in which a comparative theologian breathes, lives, and works? And what possible significance do they have in shaping his or her values and interests? If they are the liberal Protestant and secular North American university communities, are they the contextual forces whose normative lens make it more compelling for a theologian to focus on subject matter and easier to discount commitment to specifically religious communities? If so, should not these factors and their norms be made explicit in setting a starting point for dialogue with other religions, especially non-Western and non-Christian ones? In Dr. Neville's paper, it sometimes seems to me as if the topic-oriented model of comparative theology proceeds in a social and institutional vacuum. It does not seem to make clear its own contextual nature and leaves unanswered who concretely benefits from this work, 
a question of central concern in both Cornelius and Clooney's works. If, to quote Dr. Neville again, theological claims should recommend ways to think and live in fact of ultimacy, end quote, we should note that no one lives in abstract spaces, but only in embodied living relationships and settings. So my question is, how does Dr. Neville's model account for the impact of such relationships and settings on a comparative theologian's hermeneutical lens? In closing, I just want to make this observation. The potential dangers of this have been articulated loudly enough by critical theorists and those influenced by them, and their arguments have become basically tired. The issue of location is not neutral, but involves issues of interest, power, and privilege. Not, criti not critically examining one's own embeddedness leads to masking one's own agendas. Isn't this the precise reason why someone like Cornel, as a Catholic theologian, is at pains to situate herself in the particularities of her own tradition and to admit upfront that the ultimate goal of her work simply cannot be a disinterested understanding of a different religious tradition. Rather, to be transparent about her perspective, doesn't the final goal have to be the clarification of truth from her own embeddedness in the Catholic tradition? And related to this point, Dr. Neville asserts that Cornel, as a self-identified confessional theologian, makes no pretense to understand the other on their own terms. And I think that overlooks the fact that Cornel, in all her works on comparative theology and the article, Confessional Nature of Comparative Theology, from which you quote, actually presupposes such understanding as the initial stage of doing comparative theology. In my reading, Cornel argues, in contrast to Dr. Neville, that asserting the understanding of the other on their own terms as the final goal of comparative theology would be in effect to, de to deny the unavoidably situated and value-laden character of any theological perspective. I am not sure that Dr. Neville addresses this issue of location and its connection to bias and power in the substantial ways that Clooney and Cornell have done in their work. So I, I would just like to ask for further clarification. I would just like to condense my points into three questions. The first two are addressed directly to Dr. Neville. The third is actually posed to the Boston College School of Comparative Theology. <laughs> is one's, to, to Dr. Neville, is one's religious community at all important to a theologian? Is there any value, uh, besides wariness <laughs> as an attitude, in intentionally cultivating an ongoing dialogue and relationship with one's religious community for comparative theology? Um, and, and I would think there is, because theology is not only about ideas, but encompasses communal relationships and practices that cultivate certain dispositions and enact certain virtues. The second question is, how does your model of comparative theology address the issues of location, power, and privilege, which come into play in producing academic knowledge? The third question, now directed to Professors Clooney and Cornell in the Boston School, how do Drs. Clooney and Cornell account for the need for confessional comparative theology to be in dialogue with and contribute to the broader academic community outside religious boundaries. And I don't think that is an issue that we have clarified enough. So thank you very much. Thank you. So I'd like to thank our three respondents for doing a wonderful job and also for keeping within their time limits and raising many new questions. So thank you so much. 
We probably have about 15 minutes before we break. We usually stop at 7. Maybe tonight we can go to 7.05 and then just have a more informal conversation for a little bit. So maybe I could ask Bob to come back up if you would like to say anything briefly to your respondents and then uh, just open up because you've all been very patient in listening. I think the, uh, uh, thank you very much to all, all three of you. Uh, the um, uh, critical question that was raised is uh, what to do about the value of your comparative theology for religious communities. Uh, and I'm, I'm fairly active in two communities uh, the Christian community, the Methodist Church, uh, to get Methodists to think comparatively uh, uh, outside the, the, the academic Methodists, uh, well, it, it really would be good if they would do that. Uh, and, and so there, I, I, I don't know that my comparative work, uh, comparing Christianity with Confucianism, uh, is likely to make much headway for a while. On the other hand, I, I'm, I'm active in the Confucian community uh, and uh, defend a kind of progressive Confucianism as opposed to what many people regard as a conservative or, or um, uh, 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 regressive uh, Confucianism. Uh, and uh, that, that, that's getting some attention. Now, uh, I, I just discovered that uh, the, the book that I held up uh, the good is one, its manifestations many, uh, is being uh, used uh, as a text in Manhattan College, a Catholic school in, in New York. I think it's Manhattanville. Manhattanville, okay, well that's another Catholic college, about, about uh, 20 miles from Manhattan College. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I would like to have a positive effect on that community, but I think that the, the, uh, the work of doing good comparative theology uh, should not be biased, if you can help it, by the attempt to practically change a community. You can also work at that, uh, but you have to be careful not to uh, say the things in comparison that you know are going to, to, uh, to either correct a situation or, or bring kudos to that. Well, I, of course, uh, the end of my talk, where I described uh, uh, Frank's uh, Brooklyn background and my Missouri background, uh, that I think is really important that we identify where we come from, but it takes a long time to understand it. I'm 77, I'm just beginning to understand what it means to be a, a Methodist from Missouri. Uh, okay, I think questions for the rest of that. You can just pick yourself, yeah, pick. Okay, Anna, please. Thank you for the fascinating lecture. The first question is a clarification. So you were speaking of your plural called religious background, you know, Boston Confucian, Methodist. So when we speak of home institutions, home religions, home traditions, we would agree with that plural version as well as the singular version. Mm -hmm. right? You can say one can speak from my own home traditions. I'm a scholar of Chinese religion, and for Chinese person, unless they're Christians or Muslims, they, they are dipped in different traditions at once. It's the uh, internally pluralistic uh, uh, religious uh, environment. So would you be all right with that plural version of one's uh, own religious traditions? Yes, yeah, yes, I think that um, if, if, I, if I understand the, uh, the question, uh, I think that um, the, the metaphor of being at home uh, wears thin after a bit. 
Uh, so uh, to, to, to push it to an extreme, I think that ideally we all ought to be at home with all traditions. Uh, but uh, of course we're we come at each one of them with a particular bias for which we need to seek correction and self-understanding. May I ask a quick second question? Uh, very quick very one. Quick. Very quick. <laughs> so I'm actually thinking that your differences may not be as stark as, as the paper suggests. I'm seeing different modalities of comparative theology, and your modalities, ideas, and yours is about religious situations, which I think is very, very important. Would you also agree that we can think of religious practice comparative religious practice, such as ritual life, as yet another modality. Yes. And that can be described as perhaps practice-seeking understanding. Yes. That, that, that sounds very good, yes. There <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a short answer, yes. <laughs> David DeCosmo, Bob's colleague from Boston University, though I don't know if my views are so different. I don't know if that means that Boston University's vision is different or if I don't belong to that vision. But it's been said that liberalism is the tradition that doesn't think it's a tradition. And I hear in your vision something like Talikian faith seeking understanding in this sense. Isn't understanding always a matter at some level of truth taking? And don't we see in the conceptualization of say, ultimate as a category, a decision to prioritize belief as central to what religion is, as opposed to practice, as opposed to, as opposed to embodiment, as opposed as the final questioner asked to power. And so might it not be the case that the, what you call the Boston College School, precisely in articulating where, just what it is it's taking true at the outset is being more self-aware and then can circle back to subject those initial commitments to criticism. Well, I, I, I would hope that would be true. And I certainly am not saying that we ought uh, to uh, forget about the social location from which we begin and where we are at every place along the way. I think that's, that's very important. Now, um, but the example of ultimacy is, uh, that's a term that, that was made popular by Tillich. Uh, and so it, it, in that sense, uh, it's a liberal Protestant uh, uh, thing. But I've been working on making that uh, as unbiased as possible for a lot of years. Now, uh, the, the, the question that, that comes up is whether or not uh, you should explicitly say that because of where you are in, in your religious community and the venue in which you, you, you work, whether it's in an academic venue or a church venue or, or, or whatever, uh, that, uh, that where you are has trumping power. So you say you don't have to take something into account because, well, it just doesn't, it, it's not, not, not good in, in my social location. Yeah, and that's what I'm concerned about. I think you always ought to circle back to understand where you have been uh, and the, the real meaning of that. And to be a, a Methodist from Missouri, um, that, that's, uh, that's a very particular and conflicting sort of thing. So. Hi, thank you very much. I have a question or a good point. Um, 
So when you talk about confessing a holy tradition, you mentioned some terms such as authority, canon, sanctioning of certain you know, beliefs, whatnot. Um, but I'm curious if it's not so much that that makes it a confession to home tradition, but ra rather the terms and the vocabulary and the discursive tradition engaged in the sort of a conclusion of comparative projects that makes a project confessional not. By which I mean, when tossing around the term faith-seeking understanding, um, fidens quarant intellectum, intellectum can also just mean meaning, right? Faith-seeking meaning. Um, so it's not so much, is it possible it's not so much that a confessional Catholic comparative theological project is um, having no meaning or value to a non-Catholic, but rather that there is more meaning and more value to a Catholic because it is written in the language and the vocabulary um, whereby a Catholic find, finds that, find, understands it a little mm -hmm. better. Um, and it, it almost seems that had the field been called Catholic theology performed interreligiously, we wouldn't be having this conversation because the word compared the loaded historical term in the academically comparative wouldn't be involved. And in fact, on the other side of the pond in Europe, they don't even use the term comparative theology. It's, it's just called interreligious theology, right? So this is a, a long question, sort of make, trying to understand what does it mean to be confessional? Is it authority? Is it canon? Is it Is it just that you use terms and vocabulary and you engage in discursive fiction that makes more sense for more meaning for one tradition, for one reader than another, not that there's no meaning for the other reader. Does that make sense or is that? Uh, it, it does. We, we, um, the languages that we use to do comparative uh, theology uh, reflect uh, uh, where we come from. When I, when I listed the, uh, the number of different comparativists that were in the Comparative <coughs> Religious Ideas Project, uh, they, uh, we, we could trace back where they, uh, wh why they took the tack that they did uh, there. Now, uh, a couple of things that I, I want to uh, uh, say. Uh, several, several people have raised the question of the relation between comparative theology and comparative religion. Uh, and uh, Frank, in his book that I, I passed around, and which I'd like back in the course of time, is. <laughs> uh, 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 he, he makes a big distinction between them, and, and uh, uh, Catherine Cornell uh, says that uh, comparative. Thank you. <laughs> uh, co comparative religion is neutral and scientific. Uh, now, comparative religion often includes comparative ritual uh, and comparative uh, social institutions, uh, the, the nature of church organizations, or in the case of Confucianism, uh, there's very little institutional organization. The, the tradition is passed down through families, not through uh, church traditions and, and so forth. Uh, I think that the line between those is to be set uh, arbitrarily. Um, so in our comparative religious ideas project, religious ideas, um, uh, we, we gave ourselves the license not to have to worry about con uh, concerns about uh, what foods are good to eat and what foods are forbidden uh, or ritual practices just because uh, we couldn't do everything. Uh, and also, because this was where Frank's influence was very important, uh, we do comparative theology in the first instance by studying texts, things that are, are written down. Now, that, that's, that's fairly arbitrary. You can move over into all sorts of other things. 
I, I am, um, in addition to being a Confucian and a Christian uh, and a pragmatist, uh, am a Platonist. Um, and Plato argued that the function of theoretical ideas is to guide life. It's to be practical. There's a kind of a, a practical reason. This is in contrast to uh, Aristotle, uh, who thought that the that a practical reason was uh, for the sake of stabilizing life, so that you could contemplate eternal truths. Uh, as as a Platonist, I think that the function of our theology, the reason we should try to be true in our theology, to get closer and closer to the truth, um, uh, is so that we'll live more richly with regard to ultimate things, or however you define the the overall topics of, uh, of religion, theology. Yes? Um, since we have a chance for <clears throat> a, a Confucian Christian or Christian Confucian here, um, you mentioned the, the example of Matteo Ricci, of course, famous example. And um, this became an inspiration to many missionaries trying to understand <laughs> Confucianism. Um, but recently, a lot of, there's a lot of argument of did Ricci even understand Confucianism properly, or he just sort of imagined? You know, you see a lot of textual work, very detailed. Are the meanings being transmitted correctly? Do you have an opinion on this? Did Ricci understand Confucianism? <laughs> well, uh, it, it, in his social context, uh, surprisingly, he learned Chinese. He made friends with the Confucian scholars. Uh, he had many conversations. Now, uh, did he imbibe Confucianism from his mother's knee? No. Uh, and of course, he was looking for a particular kind of, of, uh, of a positive comparison uh, with uh, Confucianism. Uh, he, uh, he operated uh, with the Confucian elite more than with the Chinese masses. Uh, and so that, that would give rise to a certain kind of bias. Actually, Bin Song probably is better able to answer that question of what uh, Ricci knew, than, since he writes about that. Maybe 7% are right. 70% are right. 30%. <laughs> 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 Maybe time for a Do you want to say anything, Frank? I thought after that. Maybe okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Uh, uh, thanks again for your presentation, and, and thanks to the respondents. They were wonderful responses. Um, I'm more disturbed by um, speaking of uh, confession and home traditions as sociological categories. I think really what's at stake here is systematic theology. Can the comparative ideas fit systematically within uh, a Christian uh, systematic uh, framework where all of the pieces make sense and are coherent? Yeah. Uh. No. Uh, I, I think that the discipline of systematic theology, when practiced within a given tradition, say in a given seminary uh, with a denominational affiliation like Catholic or Methodist or whatever, um, you, you, can, you, can do it, you can do systematic theology so far as it means um, uh, systematizing the doctrines and things like that. And you can say, well, of course, we believe them to be true. But now, are they true? And systematic theology, if it's going to be, if it's going to flourish, has to be able to ask whether it's true, not whether it starts with what it, uh, uh, with, well, it must be true somehow or other, and I just want to straighten it out so as to eliminate the confusions. Now, uh, not everybody's a theologian, uh, unless you're a Confucian. Uh, 
and, and, and all Confucians are theologians. I guess one of the points of, of Bin Song's uh, remark, the, the, uh, the chief spiritual practice is study. Uh, and study so as to correct the self, so as to be able to engage things more clearly and effectively. Uh, but I think that the, the practice of systematic theology, as in many Christian institutions, uh, is at fault for not being willing to look at the theology in terms of its alternatives, uh, and, in, in, uh, and uh, including uh, thinking in terms of really different basic metaphorical systems. So the, the, the Christian tradition uh, and, and, and Jewish and Muslim traditions, uh, as I mentioned briefly here, uh, uh, describe God or the ultimate uh, in personifying terms. And the sophisticated theologians sort of unpersonify it, push it really hard. The, the, the pure act of to be uh, is not a guy uh, in any ordinary sense. Uh, the, the systems work very different. Uh, it, the metaphors work differently in uh, when, say, the Chinese uh, undertake to uh, uh, speak of ultimacy. There, I think the metaphors of spontaneous emergence uh, are, are much more powerful uh, rather than uh, the will of something. So, and there are different, different uh, values that come from that. But yet it tolerates us. Uh, yes. Um, I don't want to say that any kind of theology is uh, not to be allowed. I do want to say that to do any kind of theology well means, uh, well, uh, first of all, that it have be erudite comparatively, uh, and that it be systematic, by which I mean not having a, a deductive system, but looking at the topics from every angle that you can think of. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just make a couple of comments as we finish, and then there'll be time, just people can hang around and chat some more. I was thinking of this issue of, um, I think one thing I might disagree with in Bob's representation of my work is that I say only my version of comparative theology is the right way. I'd love you to quote me the actual passage where I say that, because <laughs> you didn't quote that, you quoted other things. And I think if, insofar as I said only, I think it's part of this, what I mentioned earlier, this sacramental logic that there's a way in which the intensity of the sacred and the sacred either discovered or the sacred evoked in a community has a strong sense of the only, but it's not necessarily a colonialist or hegemonic only that rules out all other rational alternatives, but there's a certain compelling sense it's this and nothing else. But on, on a more ordinary level, I was simply saying, well, this is the way I do comparative theology. My books always start on the first page with saying, all right, here I am in this Catholic from Brooklyn, not from Missouri, but Catholic from Brooklyn doing my work here, what did you expect? And that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing I say, and following up on what Bede was asking, I have more confidence in systematic theology when properly done. Now, this is always a loophole or a way out of, of the matter. But that, if you think back to, you mentioned, evoked earlier, the early, the pre-modern period in which philosophy and theology are not separated from one another. I would think of somebody, perhaps Aquinas, but also certainly Augustine, and Bonaventure, for instance, those great figures for whom theology is always engaging in practice. Theology is always opening up into the holy. There's always a kind of um, a formative process going on. And that theology well done, not simply reduced to the book or to certain answers to questions, 
or today perhaps opened up into social responsibility or the transformation of society prophetically is going to be able to have a stronger role to which the comparativist, like anybody else, should be accountable in terms of, well, how does this fit in the confessional doctrines of one's faith? And that's not a bad thing. And then I just, I can't resist taking up one J.R.'s question about um, the BC comparativists, of course. That's my past, not my present. Um, <laughs> in terms of, of how, what is the accountability to the academy? And I, I think the easiest way to put it, and then to stop so that we can move on, is to say that the Catholic tradition is always the capital C, the small c. Mm -hmm. And this kind of Catholicism, when was there a moment when theology or philosophy were not already indebted to larger cultural currents of thinking, um, things from literature, things from philosophy, things from the arts, things from logic, and so on. This is always going on, and it's not so much should we jump in there and do this or not, but when were we not doing it? And this idea that, you know, at least I think of the great Catholic tradition, I mean, back to the earliest church in the Mediterranean world, but also the church in its European instantiation, the church as it found itself in Asia and Africa, is inevitably spilling over its boundaries mm -hmm. and engaging culture. And the question is not should we participate in the academy, but do we want to do it explicitly and well, and well or be dragged kicking and screaming into something that we try to deny? So I, I think there's a lot to be talked about there. It's an excellent question as well. But I really do think for the sake of people on tight schedules and cleaning the room and so on, we should draw to a close. One kind of, I'm sorry I can't um, put it another way, uh, some people in the room, we have a very small dinner afterwards, um, around 7.30 up in the front room. My apology that I couldn't invite everybody in the room to it, but the simply it's, it's a small thing. But around 7.30 or so, but there's still things to eat and drink and all of us can linger here for a while. But let us conclude by thanking our three respondents who are great, and especially Bob Martin. <laughs>